Hello there. Yes, heard right. It's me again. The witch is back, and there's hell today. In the considerable time that has elapsed since we were last able to sit down and record a potty together, we have a new monarch, two new prime ministers, four chancellors, and a partridge in a pear tree. Georgia, in the meantime, has been hijacking the podcast with her high women, whilst I have been away. Like each week of this conservative government, we are kicking off this new season of the pod by announcing a completely new theme and an overhaul of the whole thing. We are now a music pod. And kicking off the new season, in this episode, Georgia and I shall be covering the topic of music and identity. As you can imagine, Georgia has prepared significantly more for this than I have, but you're used to that at this point. Shockingly, though, I did manage to make him prepare at least a little bit this time around, so hopefully he's not going to whine too much on Twitter about being edited out again. I wasn't edited out. My speech was massacred. Welcome to my TED Talk on... that's one of our best intros yet yes, i do <laughs> oh it's I so do. good to be back doing a podcast with you <laughs> <laughs> i've missed you oh, some some lovely tory bashing some jabs at each other it's everything that we could ever ask for all is maybe this is why the country's gone to shit because we haven't been doing a podcast honestly it wouldn't surprise me no maybe we should just run for government me and you can you imagine? Actually, to be honest, <laughs> yes, I was just about to say, I think actually you and I together, <clears throat> if we sort of job shared the prime minister's position, I think it'd be wonderful because the thing is, it'd be, we'd both fill each other's gaps in knowledge. Yeah. And equally, you could bring me back down to earth when I'm being radical. <laughs> <laughs> I'll handle the social care. <laughs> You'll just be the welfare state. I will be the welfare state. <laughs> you might have to be foreign secretary as well, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, what, what are you going to do then? Run the country. <laughs> you can do all the boring shit you can do all the stuff that stops me from just having a magic money tree and trying to like give everyone yes. a thousand pounds for no reason yes we just completely cover up the black holes in your economic policy <laughs> like jeremy hunt with liz truss <laughs> <laughs> right should oh. we try and you know yes. do our pieces in the brief interlude of your neighbor's trying to drill to the centre of the earth. Yes. That would be, I think they found the centre of the earth. They've been I going think she's for about just three got months. a big vibrator. What's really concerning is it's an old man. <laughs> you I mean, he may, have, he may, he may have. have a, a sizable vibrator. I don't know. 
Tangent number one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be a lot more. <laughs> but like one of those automated voices you get at the post office or something. Tangent number one, please. <laughs> right. So brace yourself for another truly fascinating deep dive into the depths of my brain. To say it is an interesting place to be would be a lie. It's not. In here, there exists a constant oscillation between various obsessions of mine, of which this is just the tip of the iceberg. And speaking of icebergs, it begins with a late night watching of an iceberg video on YouTube. Ever seen one? They're a fascinating genre if you are into any kind of niche subculture thingy. Just like how an iceberg has hidden submerged depths, these videos discuss the different and increasingly obscure layers of a particular topic. Now, the one I was watching was a black metal lore iceberg, which went on for some 39 minutes. Can I just tell you the long winter evenings really do fly by in my household? Anyway, there I were, watching the video and feeling all smug that I actually knew pretty much all of the lore the video was bringing up. The self-satisfied feeling of knowing something other people apparently usually don't gives you a much-needed boost when you are working on a PhD that leaves you feeling as though you are constantly several steps behind everybody else as an almost daily occurrence. So, ego-soothed and boosted, I sat down and reflected on narrative, as one does over a cup of coffee when they are meant to be working. Narrative and identity. The stories we tell ourselves, the reasons why. The blurred line between fantasy and reality when we are dealing with these topics. In the case of the Black Metal Law video I had just watched, the veil between the dark fantasy and the arguably equally dark, albeit potentially less sensational, reality is at times tremendously thin. I'm not going to claim that I got to the bottom of it, but here are some thoughts I had along the way. There exists a rather excellent book entitled The Nordic Ingredient, European Nationalisms and Norwegian Music Since 1905, it's quite the page-turner, or at least to the mind bent on procrastination, it's truly riveting. In the 1990s, a younger generation of metal artists in the Nordic countries changed the traditional Nordic narrative and, development, and developed an ambition to preserve national heritage based on domestic Viking topics. But one should remember that not everyone can avoid the use of stereotypes. Artists do not have to be historians collecting facts from ancient times with lucid objective precision and placing them into a convincing jigsaw puzzle despite lacking pieces. Instead, it is the fictitious filling in of those parts we do not know which triggers our imagination. So that's a nice comforting piece which is wonderfully permissive of the more extreme side of the metal acts which it alludes to. It doesn't delve into the murders, suicides and far-right politics of said younger generation of artists, for which I'm almost grateful for. It can get more than a little tedious to only talk about those aspects of this time period. And this did provide a helpful starting point for my quest to unravel the mysteries of narrative and identity in black metal. Terms and conditions apply because I'm not about to pretend I haven't know enough to truly unravel it. Think of me more as a cat swiping clumsily at a ball of wool, swatting it across the room and spooking myself in the process. Cat analogy aside, what the book did do was furnish me with a few starting points to take into consideration when looking at narrative and identity in black metal. One, appeal to history, even though this history may be, and in fact often is, false or not sufficiently nuanced. Two, link to this, nostalgia for said history, which leads to a deep desire to preserve said history. So what else? I wasn't done yet, still had over half a working day left to kill and not do work in. 
So down we go to the depths of hideous gnosis, a black metal symposium on December the, December the 12th, 2009 in Brooklyn, New York. Let's preface this by sharing the view of one dear reviewer of this event. Hideous gnosis does what it feared most. It opens up a space for pseudo-hipsters to plunder one of the final readouts of the counterculture. While it shouldn't be hard to analyse black metal, justifying its more out-of-control elements is a huge challenge simply not met by this anthology of essayists trying to outdo each other with impenetrable analysis. A glowing recommendation if ever there was one, and one which rings true for a lot of academia as well as black metal nerd analysis, but I digress. On this recommendation alone did I decide that this was no doubt absolutely the source for me to read next. Who doesn't love a pseudo-hipster pontificating about out-of-control elements? One of the essays inside comes from Benjamin Noyce and is entitled Remain True to the Earth Remarks on the Politics of Black Metal, which felt like a natural follow-on from the identifying of history and nostalgia on my narrative and identity list, since politics is often one of the natural follow-ons from these things and the way in which they play out in the real world. In his essay, Noyce called black metal politics a radical anti-humanist individualism, implacably hostile to all the ideological spooks of the present social order, which I must add is excellent news for our essay reviewer, who has secured his true cult status by slagging off this very modern hipster symposium and thereby skewing the modern social order. Noyce goes on to clarify that, more precisely, it lies in the retention of certain radicalised spooks, notably nation, race, historical tradition, or counter-tradition, and war, that perform the dual function of disrupting the limits of acceptable discourse within modern liberal democracies and grounding the abyssal draining of all ideological contents. Of course, there are often spooks associated with the extreme right, Nazism, and fascism, and ultranationalism. Indeed, if you do even the most brief of looks into the realm of black metal, you will find a lot of reference to the above, and it is quite hard, therefore, not to see the merit in adding the extreme politics to the list I've begun devising. My use of the term extreme politics is deliberate here, since it would be remiss to suggest that it is only possible for this to manifest in far-right politics, even though it usually does seem to take that form. I would argue that when you are dealing with such extremes in aesthetic, musical content, and the rewriting of historical past with a decidedly countercultural slant on things, boundaries get blurred incredibly quick. Indeed, in this same essay, Noyce brings in an example from an artist who argues that a more left-leaning band, say even like Wolves in the Throne Room, who have an eco-pagan worldview, still occupy a slightly ambiguous place on the political spectrum, since ecologism was born in an extreme right-wing context and as part of the Volkish concept, the inseparable unity between folk and land, a land which should be protected as much as revered. I'm not going to go too deep into analysing this part here, since I think it works quite well to illustrate my own point on its own. Just as the book on Nordic identity points out, artists are not historians. We do not and should not rely on them for facts. I have no clue if this concept is rooted in right-wing worldviews, or whether their description of Volkish is the most correct one. My hunch is that there is at least a grain of truth in here, and that the artist has no doubt also injected a fair amount of historical blurred lines, fact, fiction, nostalgia discourse, and imposed a modern left-right-wing dichotomy on a more ancient belief which was never really even designed with that spectrum in mind. However, this is a blurred line, and not something I can easily argue against. In that sense, this artist's words, just as our book on Nordic music suggested, has an ambition to preserve national heritage based on domestic Viking topics that triggers our imagination. Their words are countercultural, 
they both adhere to and do not adhere to the prescribed view of politics today. They blur the meanings of terms historical and present with enough fact behind it as to render it conceivable, whilst also seeming to function primarily as an abrasive jolt to right or left-wing readers alike, who will jump at hearing their own perhaps dearly held beliefs being tossed about and rendered impenetrable. But I'm not right-wing, a lefty might insist. At the end of the day, does this artist care? Maybe. Or maybe they just like the chaos throwing this comment out there causes. Regardless, it is clear that territorial politics have played a role in shaping the aesthetics of black metal. The irony in all of this, as Ben Noyce points out, is that the aesthetic elements of black metal are most likely going to appeal to the left or left-leaning cultural critic. Which is true, to an extent, I'm sure. At least in my case, I can share that I score pretty far on the left side of things whenever I do the political compass test, though I admit to having enough grumpy sass and contempt for humans that the appeal for black metal for me is no doubt largely due to the anti-human and hostile to ideology notions that are embedded within it. So, to refresh your memory in case I've bored you to death here and you need to be resurrected, black metal, appeal to history even though this history may be, and in fact often is, false or not sufficiently nuanced, Two, link to this, nostalgia for said history, which leads to a deep desire to preserve said history. Three, blurring of lines and playing with transgressive boundaries. And four, countercultural grumpy men hating on pseudo-intellectuals. Me, I like history, but feel out of depth amongst truly educated people, so resort to shit like this. Two, I'm nostalgic for a romanticised version of history, which leads me to pretentiously light a candle before I write a thesis to roleplay as a romantic figurine, even though candles were no doubt more of a scarcity at the time and definitely were not able to be lit by hipsters during the day in order to give off a vibe. Three. Nostalgia for a thing that did not even exist then, but which I get a kick out of reanimating and triggering my own imagination with. And four. Blurring the lines and being able to be a grumpy git. This should probably be number one, really, as at the moment, I'm feeling it really very strongly as I'm due on my period. Throughout all of this pseudo-research, one, one theme that stood out to me was the blurring of lines. I decided to take this one part further. Thus far, I've spoken mainly about the aesthetics and politics that underpin the genre. Now I want to turn to questions about music itself. Unlike at academic conferences, it's actually questions rather than comments, and I don't intend on answering them. What happens when you obscure melody with abrasive vocals and noise? What happens when you push the boundaries of language so that you are in effect placed in a passive role and acted upon? By this, I mean the fact that language is blurred here. What language are they speaking? Are they using words? Some artists will produce vocals the listener may be unable to hear or understand. Sometimes if you look up those words, you won't be able to find them. It's the most wonderful and ultimate pretension when an artist refuses to release their lyrics. If you do find them, what do you do when you don't like what you find? What if a sound you like turns out to be glorifying something of horrific? Or what if it's just shit? Example, one of my favourite songs, Quintessence. I want to paint the scene of Younger Me. I'm a weird kid. I'm madly in love in the most platonic of senses with my literature teacher as she reads out Hamlet to me and we discuss it over a cup of tea in her office one day when the rest of the class didn't turn up. Yeah, that kind of kid. One of my favourite lines from Hamlet was, What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god. 
the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. I was hooked and captivated by this. I loved the idea of quintessence. The word felt delicious to utter, a satisfying hiss that could slide beautifully through the teeth. Beautiful, heavenly even. So I saw Darkthrone had a song called Quintessence, and I was so excited I skipped off to Google to look up the lyrics, thinking that with a title like that it was bound to be good. Let me just read those lyrics to you. Eight miles deep, the well forgotten by mortals, oh I drank it empty in one single sip. Eight miles wide, the valley beyond all hope, oh I filled the hole with one single fist. Five million Christians on a ride towards us, oh I slaughtered the bunch with one single hit, with my spear. Five million women so alone in the night, oh I had them all satisfied profusely. Every night by myself, ten thousand trolls hard as cold ice, oh they ran when I rose to face them. Ten hungry waves they swallowed my ship, oh I steadily walked home, and I only got wet on my feet. No single book was beholden by me. Oh, no question, I cannot do answer. Only one single lamp do show me this way, and that is the eye of Satan. Not exactly going on the fridge, is it? Not exactly Instagrammable. And I do love me an Instagrammable piece. That disappointment, though, was eventually replaced by a kind of savage pleasure in how shit it was. Let's just take a look quickly at how base and shitty it is. It's juvenile at every level, yet still hits all the juicy aesthetic needs. There's an appeal to history, or at least a national opposing territorial history based on artistic imagination. Nostalgia? Check. Violence? Check. Satan, or at least an opposing public decency towards Christianity? Check. There is certainly no sophisticated devil worship going on here. Implications of twisted politics, since ethics and morality and decency have all been blurred in this weird, perverted fantasy world. Fantasy lore, trolls. Who doesn't love a troll? Check. Sex. Big check. And bonus points for the fact it's the clear fantasy of a young nerd to satisfy shitloads of women single-handedly. So we are hitting all of those juicy good spots, presumably just as the singer does to his millions of women, dictated to us as genre-defining. And lyrically, it was at first disappointing to my younger self, but my current self, which also still contains that past version of me, delights in the narrative that I hoped for more and expected more and wanted more and searched for more and then got this. I actually think because of this that the song and my own narrative which I've put onto it encapsulates perfectly what Hamlet says in the passage. The mainstream view in society is that we are all good, we are all special and beautiful and from a religious view, divine, noble, admirable and the most beloved of God's creations, as Hamlet articulates. And yet, sometimes, just as Hamlet does, sometimes I just want to revel in shit and destabilise humans as the worthy centre of all things. There you go. I'm done with my ramble. That was uh, very interesting. <laughs> Really, was it? <laughs> Why does it always come back to Shakespeare? Like, everything. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, not, it's not a critique of you. It's just everything seems to always come back to Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, I know. It kind of annoys me because I also don't enjoy him. I think Hamlet is really the only play by him that I like. Okay. See, I love... Well, you know how much I love Othello. I've still never read it. Ah, oh, see, I think you would... 
Or, or read one of the comedies like Twelfth Night. That's hilarious. I've read Twelfth Night. I like. I like. I like I know, all of them, I know. but Hamlet's just a bit juicier for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was enjoying what you were saying about um, Dark Throne. Mm-hmm. And how you, you can acknowledge that a piece of music is shit, yet, like for you, it still satisfies something within you that you want. Mm-hmm. You know? Can you go out? So you asked a series of questions. I didn't have a chance to write them down as you were telling me. What were you? What were the questions you posited? Um, I mean, I can just give you the rough overview if you want. I don't know if mm. you want to really go through it all again, but yeah, just kind of um, the blurred boundaries of it and the ambiguity of it all. Um, mm. when you <clears throat> are relying so heavily on uh, distortion and what is that word that I cannot think of um discordant no are you thinking of dissonance that's it i knew i knew it had a diss in it you know all of these different when you have that to such an extreme degree Mm -hmm. how much does that really then work perfectly for the idea of blurring boundaries and blurring lines you know what i mean are they really words is it really music um yeah is it the same type of enjoyment that you get out of a piece of music where it's pleasing and soothing to listen to. Mm -hmm. Um, And what is the kind of enjoyment that you get from something like what I had with that song of when you're like, oh yeah, that's going to be really great with a title like that. And then you're sort of let down. What's the broader narrative (laughs) that you can kind of extrapolate from that and say, is it play potentially? I think whether they had that in mind or not when they did it there's something really quite funny and almost affirming about how Mm -hmm. random and chaotic life and the universe is when you go into something expecting to find something profound and beautiful and that is going to be a moving quote and instead you just have this sort of stream of conscious monologue from a guy sort of screaming into a microphone (laughs) about five million women so alone in the night oh i have them all satisfied profusely and then in brackets he says every night by myself like the little interjections (laughs) after every line are what like i love the most about this song it just kind of feels like someone just trying to brag to his friends in the playground like "Ah, i killed millions by myself (laughs) it makes me i tell you what it makes me think of jay from the in-betweeners still not seen that either oh you haven't oh hopefully our one viewer understands what I mean because I've watched uh, the in-betweeners but he he's the sort of person you know there's a, there's a group of four of them and you know let's say there's this rather attractive woman walks mm-hmm. past J- Jay would be the one who goes oh I've had her mate you know? <laughs> right okay yeah I've yeah, had yeah. her up the side of a caravan or something like you know what I mean but that's that what it of... feels like to me yeah. in this song yeah and I think there's something quite wonderful about that Mm. And it's, I think it was just a really good example that came to my mind of when you, it's hitting all those spots, all those juicy spots, you know, the nostalgia, the history, um, the kind of overlap that there seems to so often be with sort of fantasy, um, LARPing and um, Lord of the Rings and all these kind of, you know, an anti-Christian, which you know, it's just because in the context of the countries that we're dealing with here, it makes mm-hmm. sense that their countercultural movement is to be anti-Christian, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. Black metal in some countries where Islam is a predominant religion takes quite an anti-Islamic slant, for example. 
Right, okay. It's very, you know, there's different flavors of it depending on where you're at. I'm not as familiar. Mm -hmm. I don't tend to listen with as many from there, but, you know, I can think of a few where you can see that the the narrative they're pushing back against is... because that's why I wanted to put in about how I think it's extreme politics is a better kind of defining thing for it because I know of mm-hmm. one artist um, who is actually very far left and they are a they, they're non-binary, they're very LGBT pro and they are a Marxist and they produce very religious black metal. It's quite liturgical and... Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even think it's anti-Christian, actually. But but this is what I mean, right? Like, it's 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 playing with boundaries and stuff because and, uh, and, like, a set kind of identity and just pushing back on whatever is kind of the mainstream thing. I mean, historically speaking... I mean, can you even say historically? It's not that far ago. <laughs> but I know that, like, some predominant um, bands in the scene, like uh, a guy that was in Mayhem, one of the kind of earlier second-wave black metal bands went on record as saying that black metal has to be satanic, otherwise it's not black metal. Right, okay. So then where you're at kind of today with current black metal artists is because they're, like, pushing back and being countercultural towards that. They're like, fuck you, it doesn't have to contain that in it at all. Mm-hmm. And so then yeah. you do have some artists out there making the same kind of music today, but it's not satanic. Right, okay. In the sense of it's yeah. not singing about Satan, it's not using Satan as imagery like this one, I would just... Mm-hmm talking about so i think yeah that's why i would say it's it's sort of dealing often with extremes rather yeah. than particular here or there they'll just it's counter to whatever is kind of there mm-hmm. very interesting that's my naive assumption anyway i'm always like <laughs> fucking terrified whenever i talk about stuff like this online that someone's gonna find it and be like mm-mm, mm-mm, wrong dumb fucking bitch <laughs> i don't think anybody would do that only because I don't think anyone's listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like a meme online. Like, like that's why I loved that reviewer that was hating on this symposium of black metal. <laughs> I'm just like, I can't believe that you took the time to look up this symposium and set of essays and then yeah. actually like read it all and then left a review slagging it off saying that they were just <laughs> hipsters, pseudo hipsters. Um. But I, I also, I love that that was his grand take-home review, you know? Yeah. Part of me just really delights in the kind of um, grumpiness, the whole <laughs> kind of thing, like nothing's ever good enough. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's just, it's, 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 it's fun. Uh, that's, what, that's one thing that I personally love about it so much anyway, is just mm. seeing all the, the debate and the grumpiness online <laughs> i wore my dark throne top for this the one that i bought that, when i was with you is. Is yeah it is? it's the one that i bought when i was with you because you said i should get it because it said like you know a blaze in the northern <laughs> sky and you were like it's northern like you didn't even know you didn't even realize it was dark throne. you were just like it says northern you should get it and i was like well yeah i should in, in all fairness i just encourage everyone to buy everything so this is the thing if you go around to callum's I went there even just to have tea with him in his house. And then after a couple of hours, he's like, to B&M. And then I come back with a bloody rug. <laughs> after you'd slid all over it in my living room. And then sent you a nudie selfie of me on it later. Yes. When I got home. Yes. With emoji to bleep out the unmentionables. <laughs> but to be honest, it's not like I didn't pay for it. It's like you, you walked out of my house with a massive bag full of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. 
<laughs> I think you gave me a lamp, a skull, some like fairy lights, a paint set. Yeah, I give you all sorts. Yeah. <laughs> There's more oh. here for you. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> anyway, that's my that's my spiel done. Can't mm. wait to hear yours. It's not exactly on par. <laughs> I'm sure it's great. Thank you. Well, as I said to you, it's a. Uh, <laughs> I've not done. This is going. This is going to be like one of those times when you're in a seminar and you know we're doing group presentations and there's clearly the one group that really just hasn't bothered, and uh, <laughs> and they're the ones who go last and you're like, yeah, that really didn't meet the standard of the rest of them. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> To that end, I've gone on, as I said, a more autobiographical journey with this one because music and identity for me are synonymous. Um, <laughs> my, my life pretty much is music, um, as, as one can tell with the amount of time I've devoted to it, but I will go into that possibly in a minute or two. Um, so in order to start at the very beginning, we're going to go back, I'm not going to say how many years, we're going to go back to around about the age of two or three. Um, and even all the way back then, I was very musical. And uh, I'm really sorry, they've just started drilling. <laughs> just start, literally, just as I'm about to start talking, they've started drilling. That old man with his vibrator. Uh -huh. It's just you, really, isn't it? Under the table, don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> I promised you there's nothing under the table apart from a printer and vibrator, actually. Mm. Very nice. Can you hear that? I can. Oh. No. <laughs> For fuck's sake. Doing double time now. Right. I'm going to try and get through this. Mm-hmm. With that, what I'm going to do, I'm going to move the microphone slightly closer to me. Yep. So hopefully you can hear me even better. Yep. But okay. we will we'll see how this goes. So yes, I will apologize in advance to anybody listening, the one person listening, there are currently renovations going on in the house next door and the noise is appalling. But anyway, to start at the very beginning, <laughs> getting fed up with this. <laughs> um, so yes, even, even at the age of sort of two or three, I had, I, I responded very well to music to the point that it was very noticeable to everybody else around me obviously I was too young to acknowledge this myself but everyone else noticed um and the, the way it all really started was I spent a lot of time with my great-grandmother when I was younger and I'll go into a little bit more about that in a few minutes but you know so she would I'd finish at nursery, she'd come and collect me, I'd stay with her until my parents were ready to come and get me, all that sort of, you know, spend weekends with her. So a lot of time with her. And she had a very small Casio keyboard, it only had about three octaves, 
uh, on it, and that was in her front room. It originally belonged to my father, so um, it, it had been there for a while. And it was that that I first started to learn to play a keyboard-based instrument. This is even before I could read music. So, you know, really, really early on. Um, and at, at the time, the... Um, the keyboard itself was about 20 years old. It's, it's now about 40 years old. Um, and it came preloaded with, with a song. You could press this little demo button and it would play this particular song. To, it was Wake Me Up Before You Go Go, <laughs> which you can imagine as a sort of four year old, five year old by this point. I responded very well to Wake Me Up Before You Go. It's upbeat. There weren't any lyrics. It was just the, the keyboard playing it to itself, but it was wonderful. And that sort of really encouraged me to start learning about, you know, how to make this sound myself. Um, so at that point, I sort of started to learn beginner stuff like, you know, chopsticks, which I came to realise later what I was playing is what everybody thinks is called chopsticks, but actually isn't. Um, and you know, three blind mice, stuff like that. Um, but I would also try and learn the melodies of songs by ear. And so I'd sit there and I'd listen to them over and over and try and figure out how to play them, uh, which, you know, I, I started to be able to do. Um, and, you know, so that's sort of where it began. And I mean, as you know, that, that skill has increased significantly. Mm -hmm. Since then, you know, you, you can play me pretty much anything. Give me about five minutes, and I'll play it back to you in its entirety. Uh, it seems like a a weird flex, but there we go. Um, but whilst at my grandmother's, I would frequently listen to her CD and cassette tape collection. And a particular favourite of mine and hers uh, was a CD that consisted mainly of Glenn Miller. Uh, and a few other artists such as Anne Shelton and Doris Day. So I was always sort of surrounded by music of the 40s, which is why today um, it's still one of my favourite things to listen to. You know, you'd have you'd have stuff like um, In the Mood, that was a particular favourite. We'd get up, we'd dance with that. Um, you have a what she what she would call we'd have a little boogie. Um, so stuff, yeah, stuff like uh, In The Mood, you've got American Patrol, all the sort of big brass band things you would expect from the 40s, that sort of wartime mirror stuff like Coming In On A Wing And A Prayer, um, Sentimental Journey, all of that sort of thing. So that was sort of the first genre, I'd say, first era that I really started to listen to. Um, but in 2010, just before I went up to high school, um, everybody thought, right, it'd be a good idea if Callum actually started to have some proper piano tuition, because this is clearly something he's interested in and is perfectly capable of. Uh, so I did. I started taking proper piano lessons with uh, Mrs. Weeks. And again, you know, this was on a sort of basic level to begin with. But thanks to my teacher at primary school, I could read music fluently by the time I got to her. And uh, within a few months, I sat my first uh, piano exam, my grade one, and I passed it with a merit. Uh, and that's sort of where my love of classical music really started to take hold, because the ABRSM syllabuses, 
as you can imagine, are populated quite heavily with classical repertoire. Um, occasionally, I didn't have much choice when it came to the exam pieces, but sort of as a result of that, it sort of meant I was listening to music I wasn't necessarily aware of or would have sought out myself. Um, so you can you can imagine that after studying the ABRSM syllabuses for 12 years, I know a considerably larger amount of Baroque, classical and romantic composers than most people do. Um, you know, there, there are a few exams where Mrs. Weeks would say, I really think you should play this. And sort of I listen to it and think, oh, I, I don't really, I'm not really that fond of it. But then you go through the process of learning it and, you know, playing it over and over again. And then you sort of fall in love with it. it, it it's, you know, it's sort of like Stockholm Syndrome almost. You, you, you play a piece of music so much and you start to understand it and then you really sort of fall in love with it. So anyway, you know, as a result of all this, classical music has been a massive part of my life, you know, over half of it, um, which is why it tends to be my go-to genre when I want to relax, because for me, classical music is peace and serenity, because it's it's so familiar, that I can just switch off and fully immerse myself in it without any effort. Um, moving on to the sort of next, uh, genre in my musical journey if we're calling it that um i can't remember exactly when it happened but there came a point in my life it was during my teens where i became obsessed with the 1920s that sort of era i fell in love with art deco style and architecture and at the same time had been introduced to a, a very well-known belgian sleuth i'm sure i don't need to say which one um sherlock holmes right Yes, absolutely. Yes, we'll go with that. Oh, oh, oh! I know who it is. It's the it's the guy that um Kenneth Branagh plays. <laughs> <laughs> the next podcast episode will be containing uh my obituary of Georgia. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> is any consolation? I hate him too. I know it's utterly despicable, but that's a diff. <laughs> that's something I'm not going down today because I can't <laughs> stop. <laughs> next episode um, yes yes anyway so as I said I fell in love with art deco style and architecture and I should also add in that at the time it was very much my ambition to become an architect in the future that's what all of the subjects I took at high school and my during my A-levels that's what that was aiming for um, obviously we know that changed um but my love of the 1920s, that period in general, was cemented when I first heard Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Now, I knew about Gershwin already, and I think I think almost everybody is familiar with the song Summertime. If you're not, I feel like you were either not educated in the UK or have just been living under a rock. So <laughs> it's, it's very popular. But I'd never listened to his more major works. Uh, and then I came across Rhapsody in Blue and absolutely adored it. Uh, something, such a extravagant bit of work and, you know, how it changes throughout and the use of instruments, all of that, you know, I really got into it. And obviously this was sort of peak 1920s, that lifestyle, and it was just glorious. And I went for a massive Gershwin simping phase if you will um 
and started listening to his other things like An American in Paris, which again is glorious, his second Rhapsody, which not many people in my experience are as familiar with, but I think it's utterly brilliant. People should listen to it. Um, but this, that sort of bridged the gap um, between my deep interest in classical music and my increasing interest in jazz music. Um, because whilst it's difficult to avoid jazz in one's day-to-day -day life, I'd not really paid much attention to it. To me, it always seemed a little chaotic. Um, but it was that contrast to the regimented structure of classical music that I started to really enjoy. And, you know, I, I'd find myself in awe of jazz musicians who could sit at a piano on a stage with a jazz quartet or trio and just improvise on the spot, making it look absolutely effortless. Um, and so as a result of this, I then discovered groups like MJQ, the Modern Jazz Quartet, uh, as well as artists such as Dave Brubeck and uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, which are probably ones people hopefully have heard of. Um, but in more recent months, my interest in jazz has stretched even further, thanks to yourself, with the introduction of Doom Jazz, Doom Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, Doom Jazz and a particular group, uh, Burren and Club de Gore. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, I'm English. <laughs> <laughs> we but can so... hide behind our racism. <laughs> um, and and sort of that that interest in, as I say, is it's the contrast. Um, very similar to what you were saying earlier about the uh, chaos in uh, dark metal. Mm -hmm. I, it's sort of the same thing for me in jazz. It's very expressive, but in a very different way. It, mm -hmm. It's supposed to not necessarily marry in with what else is going on. Um, and then another shift, sort of. Uh, the next genre that I really started to take an interest in uh, was show tunes. Now, this was at some point during my A-levels, and it was probably in an attempt to distract myself from my politics revision, if I'm completely honest. Um, but I became obsessed with musical theatre. Uh, I'd use my free periods to watch musicals like Hello, Dolly, uh, Easter Parade, all the stuff like that. Uh, and as a result, I often found myself humming show tunes whilst pottering about. Um, but if I'm completely honest, if I'm alone in the car, I'll most likely be singing the entire songbook of Dreamgirls at the top of my lungs and doing it absolutely <laughs> appallingly. Uh, that is not one night only. <laughs> uh, and God forbid you interrupt my day between one and three on a Sunday afternoon when Elaine Page on Sunday is on. I haven't missed a show in about five years. Um, I still need to listen to that. You keep on suggesting it. To me. You do. She's wonderful. It, she, a very good mix of show tunes she does on a on a Sunday afternoon. It's two. It's a two hour program, so it's not like it takes much out of your day. We should do an afternoon tea again at some point, and you can listen to it with me. I'm in favour of this. Yeah. Um. So, and the next. Um, shift, if you were, although this is sort of a shift backwards but forwards at the same time, um, 
perhaps unsurprisingly as well, in the last year or so, whilst I was studying for my Associate of the Royal Schools Music Diploma, my interests evolved again. And one of the selections for my repertoire, I think we've covered this in a previous episode, was Arnold Schoenberg's Six Little Piano Pieces. Yes. This was the one that you cut out ridiculously. I did. Um, oh, whatever. Ah. Um, but these, those six little piano pieces are very experimental, uh, certainly from what I've been used to. And even if you look at the rest of my repertoire for my um, uh, recital, you know, I, I had Mozart, which is, a, you know, well, yeah. <laughs> Need I say more? Um, Brahms, and then, yes, okay, contemporary, but I had Cacciatore, but even that was a, a familiar kind of uh, classical music, whereas Schoenberg was incredibly different to what I'd done before. Uh, and as a result of this, I started looking at more experimental music, as I enjoyed experiencing music from an analytical standpoint and not just listening to music for the sake of it. Um, and, you know, in addition to Schoenberg, I, I also found artists such as Peter Sculthorpe, um, who does some stuff very similarly to Schoenberg. Um, and I also came across Madeline Dring. No relation, but <laughs> hers is more sort of experimental jazz works for piano. Certainly what, she's done something called the Colours Suite, and it's very nice to listen to, but not, not if you're looking for comfortable music, if that's what, that's what I would say. Um, but as a result of this analytical approach to music, I became more interested in film and TV music, predominantly movie scores, I must admit. Um, I've always enjoyed film music, like most people, but actually listening to it again and trying to understand the techniques composers use for film scores to create certain effects has been really, really enjoyable. Um, I sort of feel like Film music is a masterclass in multi-genre thematic writing. Um, just what you can achieve, you can do grandiose scores with an orchestra. And yes, okay, it sounds great, but does it necessarily fit with what the writers and you know, those who are responsible for the screenplay are uh, trying to convey? Or, or you can perhaps have a composer who understands what they're doing and, you know, you could have a score that is just done on one instrument, but if it's done properly, it conveys what you want it to. Um, some personal favourites I'm going to chuck in here, obviously John Williams, Michael Giacchino and Hans Zimmer. Um, I feel like those are the ones people are more likely to know. Um, Holy Trinity. It really is. And, you know, some people, you hear these names and they, they say the obvious, like, oh, John Williams, yes, the Star Wars score, brilliant. But have they listened to Schindler's List? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got Michael Giacchino, who did, well, he's done quite a lot. And a lot of it's very different. He did a fantastic brass-based score to The Incredibles films. Absolutely brilliant. Um, but then he moved into more romantic stuff with the score for Ratatouille, which, well, in it, well, the score from Ratatouille is just incredible. So Beautiful. I could I could go mm -hmm. on about that for ages, but I really shouldn't. Uh, recently, however, uh, in take as I say, in taking a step forward, I seem to have taken a step backwards. Because uh, in August, I became the church organist at St Ethelbert's Church in Retham, 
which is a village about six miles from me. And I am now exploring the vast world of religious music. <laughs> uh, now, it's actually been a very rewarding endeavour. Uh, for such a long time, I've been dismissive of organised religion, but I have really been enjoying the social aspect of playing for the congregation. And there's something really quite endearing about collective worship and collective singing. Um, it was a little daunting at first, but I'm getting the hang of it. Uh, and I get to keep my analytical English literature skills in practice when I'm trying to select appropriate hymns for the week's readings. On top of this, uh, it's also been great fun to be presented with a new challenge in playing the organ. And I must confess, when I first started trying to play the foot pedals, it did not go well. But I'm slowly getting the grips with it, but it hasn't been easy. Um, and that sort of brings us up to modern day, to the current. There we go. I really enjoyed that. That's a little overview of your life through the lens of music. Mm. I think, so I'm going to psychoanalyze you based off of all of that. And I think that throughout all of it, one thing that comes across is that you're really quite open-minded and you will like try a lot of different things. Yes, secretly, like, not, I'm very open-minded. <laughs> yeah, you're not genre-bound in any no. way, shape or form. Um, I mean, I have to say, like, you know, I often kind of have like a running joke with you about you <laughs> disliking my music and, uh, and whatever else. But it is entirely that really just like completely a joke, because the reality mm -hmm. is, is that I you are patient enough to sit and listen to a lot of my rambles about my music. And I can usually send you like a song from it and you will give it a listen which is a lot more than can be said for a lot of people if I was to, I don't know, I think I played my mum one of my favourite songs a while back and she was like, yeah, it's not for me, after about five seconds and made me turn it off. We were just having a laugh, you know. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I think you're really open-minded and it kind of, your whole um, sort of evolution, really, evolution in music tastes throughout your throughout your life and the kind of common threads of your identity um, mm. that are always omnipresent throughout that. Um, I chose omnipresent because of the religious element at the end there. I hope you like that. <laughs> but yeah, things like uh, the impact of your family and mm -hmm. you know, growing up with your grandmother and, and her influence there yeah. in your music taste when you were younger and um, your identity as a musician and a pianist mm -hmm. and where that has kind of led you to explore genres that probably most people our age weren't doing yes exactly yeah um and your love of art and history and, and literature mm -hmm. and all these different things really come through in all of your music taste so i think yeah in terms of linking it to identity your identity is very much open-minded and, and has this whole commitment to this sort of evolution of self but it has these consistent strands throughout of your interests yeah. and kind of core personality which kind mm. of unify all these seemingly disparate um, yeah. strands. Am I remembering it correctly? That I don't know. I remember my English literature teacher in year 12 telling me that there was a lot of beef between um, classical music and jazz music. We were, yeah. we were examining a poet called yeah. Philip Larkin, and he's really into jazz. I'm aware of Philip Larkin, yeah. Detest classical. Have I got that the right way around? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and then she told me that it was actually a whole intellectual kind of debate between the two. Yes, I, uh, it, that certainly does seem to be the case. A lot of people 
uh, it seems to be very binary. You seem to either like jazz music or classical music. Mm. But uh, well, as as you can imagine, it's both it, both of them. It, it, it's all music. There's a lot that goes hand in hand with both. Yeah. Even on like a technical level, I mean, as I was talking about the improvisation stuff with the jazz music. You have to know a lot about music to be able to do that effortlessly. Completely. Um, you know, you've got to know what key you're in and what's going to work, what's not going to work, or if it's not going to work, are you doing it deliberately? Mm-hmm. I think the problem is, as I mentioned, classical music is so regimented. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get classical pianists and we're very devoted to what the composer has written. Whereas I think... I may get hounded for this, but with jazz mm. music, um, the music that jazz composers write are sort of guidelines, not actual rules. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I've just realised I've made a Captain Barbosa. I was just going to say that made me think of kind of a, it's the rules. Maybe more guidelines than rules. rules. <laughs> <laughs> but that's sort of what I take from it, and I think I think it's a. a well, I'm not going to say I'm upset about it, but I think it's sad that you know devout classical musicians might miss out on jazz because of this, or jazz musicians aren't going to give classical a go because they find it inaccessible. And things I think playing classical music can seem inaccessible because it is technical. Mm. You've got to devote a lot of time to it to be able to rehearse properly and play it how it's written you can obviously make your own interpretations but you've got to learn the baseline of it yeah whereas i think jazz is more accessible certainly to newer musicians and obviously there are instruments that lead more to one genre than the other i mean piano you can pretty much do anything but come on realistically what how much classical music are you going to find a saxophone mm-hmm. so like saxophone players like you can understand why they yeah. tend to lean more towards jazz because that just seems to be what's accepted. But the thing is, you can find classical music that you can work up for a, for a saxophone. Mm, mm-hmm. I've, I've I've seen a rendition of well, as I say, Gersh, my favourite Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. The only two instruments used were a piano and a saxophone. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, as I say, Rhapsody in Blue sort of does bridge that gap between jazz and classical. But you, yeah, you know, does. you see the point. You're used to having Rhapsody in Blue done with a full symphony orchestra. But the fact is, you can boil it down to just a piano or piano and saxophone. You know, there just seems to be this narrative that there are instrumental limitations to a genre. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, again, I think is sad. I think it really is because it is something I've seen, you know. As I say, you're either you seem to either be a, a jazz musician or a classical musician, mm-hmm. or God forbid, a pop musician. But we'll, <laughs> I won't go into that. Um, What's wrong with pop? No, I'll save that for another one. <laughs> save that for another day because we don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, you you are right, and your your teacher was perfectly right. There is it, it's sort of. It, not like not like a civil war almost, but there's just a divide. Mm-hmm. 
and I, I, I do. I think it's sad that people limit themselves to one genre because of these ideas. And because I, I've done both. I've, I've, I play classical music a lot, but equally, I will play jazz music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both can be just as fun. And the greatest thing with jazz music, of course, well, I say of course, you can, you can make um, mistakes and people just dismiss it as jazz. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got that freedom, whereas classical music is regimented nine times out of ten, the people listening to you play can identify yeah, when, you've, yeah. when you've made a slip up. And, uh-huh. um, but yeah, anyway. I found it really interesting um, what you mentioned about how there would be pieces, particularly of the classical nature, when you first started playing piano, that maybe at first you would be a bit like, yeah, mm, not, it's yeah. okay, it's nice, but I'm not really feeling it. But then over the, the course of the process of learning it, you fall more and more in love with it. And I feel yeah. like that's that could almost be a metaphor for a lot of things that you do as you get older, really. Not to try and make Is it all it? like yeah. grand and mystical about the meaning of life, but No, but you're yeah, right. I think I think you have that with so many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of those things you don't know till you try. I think that's what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, there was uh I think it I can't remember it must be I think it's Grieg. Edvard Creek wrote um, a piece of music I did for one of my gradings called Light and Fugal, Little Bird. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, when Mrs. Weeks first said to me, oh, you could do this, and she played it to me, and I was sort of like, mm, it's okay. But then I, then I started learning it. And really started enjoying play it, and then actually you start to realise that he's called it Little Bird for a reason. It actually does sound like little birds like mm-hmm. chirping about, and and it's it's very very clever. But the thing is, as I say, I would have just dismissed it. Yeah. When somebody says no, you've got to do this, you know, and mm-hmm. you've not got a choice, and you go through and you learn it, and you then realise why it's good. Mm-hmm. And feel silly that you would have just. That's why whenever you send me something, I do listen to it because, yeah, I try. I I can be very dismissive. I admit it. I can be, and I am. I, sort I don't of... know if dismissive is the right word for you. I think you're being a bit harsh on yourself there. Because if you were dismissive, <laughs> you wouldn't try it. I think you're uh, yeah, just fair enough. Yeah. You're even if you have that natural inclination, perhaps you don't act on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, but I I do. You you send me stuff and I think, oh, am I really gonna like this? And sometimes I listen to it and I think, yes, this is really good. Sometimes I listen to it and I think, what <laughs> the fuck is she to send me? <laughs> but I really liked that. Um, oh, I can't remember what they're called. But you sent me they were singing satanic stuff, but sort of fifty sixty style. Yeah, um, Twin Temple. That's it. Twin I Temple. thought you'd like them. They were like their sort of um doo wop satanism. Yes. Yes. They are. I I don't think that they are theistic in their approach with it, Um, but I don't know. I can't help it. They're they're quite Mm. catchy and just really sort of fun. They have songs like "Sex Magic" or "Satan Is a Woman" or um, "Lucifer, My Love," which is one of my favorites. I like that one. Lucifer. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) Um, Yeah. 
I don't know. They're just, they're really catchy. I mean, she has a gorgeous mm. voice in it. Oh, yeah. They're, they're a husband-wife duo, and they perform live. But they only perform in America, and I'm gutted, because I would love to see them live. We'll have to go over if I can get you on a plane. Ooh, if you can. <laughs> Good luck with that. Why did sedate you like Mr. T? <laughs> I was saying with Nat the other day that one day I would like to overcome my fear of flying and go to the Harry Potter world. Oh, what, in Orlando? Mm. Yes. Would you come with me? Of course I would. Excellent. Well, the thing, the thing is, you could travel with me, and because I'm more familiar with these things, if you were something that was making you nervous, I could just explain to you what was happening. Oh, that's true, because you can fly. In I an, can fly! In, a, in, an, uh, you know, in an aircraft thing, not just... <laughs> <laughs> I could just ride you. I could just... <laughs> that's, a, that's an entirely different arrangement, my friend. <laughs> Are we not there yet? No. <laughs> I don't think you're ready to ride that particular whale. <laughs> <laughs> I meant like I could sit on your back and I sort of had this image of you like on your belly with your <laughs> with your arms out like this, like an airplane, like you do with children. And then I'm just on your back and we can <laughs> fly to America. Buckbeak's flight. <laughs> <laughs> With, um, oh god! I don't know some dramatic flying music in the background. Yes. God, we'd be shot out of the sky by the FAA. <laughs> <laughs> Unexpected flying object. <laughs> I can't remember where I was going with that, but. One final thought that I did have about your piece that you did for me there. Playing by ear and the ability to just <laughs> pick up tunes. You know where this is going, don't you? Why don't have say I... it. Don't why, say it. Don't why have I still not had this black metal medley that you have been owing me? You said it. Since I don't even know. This started in the lockdowns. And Callum would... would play away and show off to me that he could pick up songs by ear on the piano and I said well do this one then and he was all like mm, no but I'm holding him to it he still hasn't done it for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so when's that one coming in the future <laughs> I eagerly await it's in the pipeline <laughs> <laughs> Bring a piano with you when you come to my house for my birthday next week, and you can just play it in. Person. Oh yeah, because that's because that's an easy challenge. <laughs> I'm getting glared at stonily, so I guess that means the podcast is at an end. <laughs> Watch me now go away and edit this, and then be submitted to a million and one whines and whinges about being cut down again. <laughs> as long as you don't cut me down too much. <laughs> just a slice. <laughs> Just a tiny little thing, like that. <laughs> thank you for your words today. And thank you. This has been great fun doing this again. I know. It's about time. Oh, it's about death turn. <laughs> In a minute, I'm going to need a sentimental woman to pump me up. <laughs> and, and on, on that, that note... note... <laughs> <laughs> Tati bye. Ta-ta. <laughs>